to the chapter we read. I'd like us to think about uh, the, uh, just what the chapter says in general uh, as we uh, think about the ways of God in our sermon. The book of uh, Hosea, I don't know if you've read it um, right through at one go. don't know if I've read it right through at one go. But I do know what the effects would be if you do read it through at one go. And um, you might say, well, what will be the effects? Well, you'll find that uh, it's possible for God's people to descend very low. And the book of Hosea makes that quite clear. And as we think about it further, we'll discover what God thinks about that. And we might say to ourselves, well, what is God's response when his people sink very low? Is he going to be furious? Is he going to be fed up? After all, he has been their God now for well over a thousand years. Surely they should have learned by now what pleases him. So, I'm sure most humans would have been fed up long before, well, they wouldn't be around for a thousand years, but, but long before just a short time wouldn't take it would only take for them to be fed up of people sinking very low. No, he doesn't, doesn't get furious and he's not fed up. Well, the one thing that the book uh, Hosea stresses about God is what he feels. And, you know, we're, we're used to dividing things into, well, Here's our emotional life, and here's our intellectual life, and here's our volitional life, and all that kind of thing. And we slot ourselves into departments, and we say to ourselves, don't we, that if our volitional life is right, then it doesn't really matter about the other two parts. Could we say that about God? Well, surely not. His, if we wished him with that same three categories, and of course God is not limited in that kind of way, but if we wish to use these three categories to describe him, they must all be in perfect balance, surely. That his information, his awareness, his omniscience, And his love, 
and his expressions of disappointment. They must gel, mustn't they? Because God is never imbalanced. He always responds divinely. And Hosea, of all the Old Testament books, stresses that. And one part of Hosea that is uh, full of these things is this last chapter. In this chapter, as we'll see later on, God is imploding. Not imploding. He's imploding his people. We can see from this chapter that there were um, three um, features that marked the, the people of Israel. And these three features all contributed to their, the mess they were in. And yet the extraordinary thing about each of the three features is that most people at that time would have put them under the category of common sense. What were the three features that marked them? Well, they looked to the most powerful empire in the world to help them. That was Assyria. Well, people are doing that today, aren't they? Who is going to help us? Well, we'll head off and ask the most powerful group to see if they can do it. Well, that's what they were doing there. They were looking to the Assyrian Empire because it was on the rise and, and nobody seemed to be able to stand against them. So therefore, common sense would say, better to be a friend of Assyria than to be a, an opponent. So that was one feature that marked them, help from Assyria. A second feature that marked them was idolatry. Now, it was perceived as being very wise to have as many gods as you could. And that's, that was the whole issue of idolatry. Uh, idolatry doesn't have one God. You can have dozens of them. You can have a God for this and a God for that and a God for whatever you wish. And from a certain point of view, if you believe in gods and, and why... And since it was rather bizarre that they actually believed in the gods, because all the gods of the surrounding nations had been defeated by the Assyrians. So, was, well, the, the nations that had these gods had been defeated by the Assyrians. So, so these gods hadn't been much use, had they? But still, the people of Israel thought it was good to accumulate gods. The Baals, as they're called in the Old Testament. There was a Baal for this and a Baal for that and a you name it, they had it. 
So that was the second problem, or the second feature of them. Strong empire, accumulate gods. And the third feature was, well, get your own, get your own self sorted out. Just build up our own army as well, because they refer to that in this chapter. We'll, we'll come to that later on. But when they, well, this stage now, when they talk about horses there in verse uh, 3, that's their own army. They said to themselves, yeah, the city is there, but I suppose they thought there might be some occasions where in a city I can't be bothered to come and help us. So in these scenarios, we'll just have to have our own, our own army just to be there. And of course, people today would say that, wouldn't they? It's good to build up your own competence. So all these three areas, to us, they might look a bit odd because they're historical. And we know Assyria is no more. And you can go and see all the... All that's left of a city is what you see in museums. Or you, we know about gods. Who talks about them anymore? And as for the attempt to improve the Israelite army, well, that got nowhere. So we might just look back and just dismiss all that. Because from our perspective, it's just a few, few moments in history. But way back then, when Hosea was, was a prophet, it was life. That was the life he had to live amongst. Common sense. And I don't think it's too hard for us to see parallels with our own modern world. The outcome, of course, was that they had stopped depending on God. All these alternatives had this one common outcome. They stopped depending on God. And that is a very challenging question. Just to ask ourselves, is what I am doing stopping me depending on God? I mean, it is a question to ask ourselves. Is what I am doing stopping me depending on God? The outcome was they had fallen away and discovered there was nobody to help them. Their hopes were dashed until Hosea appears here with his final recorded sermon. And in that sermon, in verses 1 to 2, there's a call to repentance. And in case they're not too sure what to say, verse 3 tells us the words of repentance. And after... Giving these things to the people, Hosea in verses 4 to 7 describes what restoration will be like. And he's not exaggerating when he describes the restoration. And then in verse 8, there's a divine plea. 
The heart of God speaks in verse 8. And then at verse 9, there's a brief um, statement, a call from Hosea for the people to reflect on what he has said. So here, we'll just think of these five points briefly. The call to repent. There in verses 1 and 2, uh, Hosea speaks for God and says to the folk there, he tells them to turn round and face God. I mean, what is repentance? If I was, or if anybody else for that matter, was to hand out a piece of paper to everybody here and, and say, say in your own words, what is repentance? What would you say? What would I say? I might put down, oh, it's to feel sorry for your sins. But that could be remorse. That could just be some kind of regret because things didn't work out right. Repentance has all to do with the direction you're facing. And what is the direction that they are called to go in? Who are they to face when they are repenting? And without which, if they don't do this thing, there will not be repentance. The person they have to face, or the direction in which they have to go, is they have to turn around and face God. And without facing God, it doesn't matter how sorry you feel for your sins. It's not repentance. Repentance is done facing God. Speaking to the Almighty. And according to Hosea here, God will not say anything until the people say something. And until the people say the right thing, God will not say anything. So he tells them to take with them words and return to the Lord. Can't be silent. It's not having a time of silence together. That's not repentance. And there is a certain benefit in having real words. Not just words inside your mind, but actually saying them. Because certainly that's what uh, Hosea says to the people, take with you words. I mean, for the vast majority of people, God has given them the gift of speech. And God expects them to use it. To use it when speaking to him. And he points out to them that they have to say three things. 
in order for their repentance to be real. First of all, he's, he had to say, take away all iniquity. The words that's translated there, take away, means to lift off, lift off, lift up. Like somebody with a burden on their shoulders and it's pressing them down and their own strength just can't deal with it. And they turn to God and say, lift it off. And God wants penitent people to say that to him. Lift off all iniquity. And the little word all tells us it's not just outward actions, it's inward thoughts as well. These things are a real burden. And I can't get rid of the burden. And who can? I mean, if, a, if, for example, the Holy Spirit is showing us our sins, well, even then, the smallest sin becomes a real burden. And who can lift that one off? God. But he wants to be asked. Take away all iniquity. And then, Hosea uh, <clears throat> says, the second thing you should say to God is, accept what is good. That's a surprising thing to say when somebody's been penitent, isn't it? To talk about something good. We should know he doesn't say accept what is perfect. But accept what is good. And what is good about this set of words that they are offering? Well, what's good about them is their desire. They've got a new desire. We want to be forgiven. We want to be restored. We want to be pardoned, as it were. And that desire is good. It's not just only good in our eyes. It's good in God's eyes. It's not perfect. In this life, nothing that any Christian does is perfect. So how would we expect repentance to be perfect? But although it's not perfect, the desire for repentance and the desire for forgiveness is good. And we are to say to God, says Hosea, say to God, please accept what is good. To see someone sorry for their sins and speaking to the God about it is a very good thing. So they're telling the Lord not to inform him. He knows everything. But he likes to hear it. They're telling the Lord there's a good desire in my heart. Is there a good desire in your heart?
at this moment. I mean, it is possible to hear Hosea's words and try and analyze them. Or it's possible to hear Hosea's words and imitate them. And at the moment, we should be speaking to God. Third thing that they are to do before God speaks is that they are to perform their vows. And of course, the vows of our lips. We have to speak it. In those days, the way you showed your dedication was by offering a burnt offering. It was a sacrifice totally consumed on the altar and it symbolized dedication or consecration. Now, of course, we could see somebody walking down to the altar with the best looking bull available. But unless they say something, we don't know what's in their hearts. They have to say something. So, having heard that three-point advice from uh, Hosea, the next question, obviously, to ask is, what do they say? And we get that answer in verse 3. First of all, they say, Assyria will not save us. That's statement number one. Statement number two is, we will not ride on horses. That's our own army. Statement number three is, we will never again say to an idol, our God. This is, in verse 3, it's not a Hosea speaking. It's the penitent. And we can see that they have taken his words to heart. And they've taken them to heart very quickly. I mean, it's an immediate response, isn't it? Hosea speaks in verse 2, and they speak in verse 3. And as we look at their statements, they're very clear. You know, and if there's one thing in which there should be no waffle, it's repentance. Repentance is not a time for trying to mitigate what we're confessing. Just go straight to the point. Yeah, we were wrong to ask Assyria to help us. It wasn't wise to try and build up our own armed forces without thinking about God. And it was a height of stupidity to say to something that we made in our sheds to say to our idols God 
And as I said, it was a quick response and it was also a short response. It was only six words in the first one. Five words, a city I shall not save us. Six words in the next one, we will not ride on horses. And about a dozen words in the next one. Repentance doesn't have to be a long speech. What it does have to be is a precise, personal, relevant, statement. And how do they know that they can speak like this as they are repenting? Well, they tell us at the end of verse 3. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Now, it may be that when they refer to the orphan that they are thinking, well, this is just a a common thing that God does. He's kind to the needy. And maybe that is what they are saying. But I suspect they're actually saying more. I think they are saying in their repentance, our sins took us out of your family. And yet, God offers mercy to them. It's rather extraordinary, isn't it? It's like a bit like the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a wonderful story. But you know, it's not really wonderful about the prodigal son. If we keep going on and on about the prodigal son, we miss the point of the parable. The point of the parable is the father running to embrace the prodigal. It doesn't actually really matter in a certain sense that the man was working in a pigsty. What actually is stressed and what is actually shocking in the parable, is that Jesus, the Son of God, likens his heavenly Father to a man rushing through the streets of a village to embrace a man smelling of the pig's die. But then, whenever a person repents, that's what they're smelling of. And the elder brother, keep away. But the heavenly father runs to embrace him. Is God running towards you? He didn't start running until he saw this penitent walking back. What direction does God see you walking at the moment? If you walk in the right direction, he runs to you. 
what happens after they make their little set of words to God? Well, he replies with something to say as well in verses 4 to 7. And in this divine address, or divine, whatever word we want to use, God uses plenty of illustrations, word pictures. And I suppose one reason why he uses all these illustrations is that every single time the Israelites saw the Jew and saw lilies and saw cedars of Lebanon and saw olive trees, they would just think of God. It's kind of just helping things to register in your mind. But the first thing God says is that he will become their doctor. I will heal their apostasy. Now, apostasy, well, it's, it's normally something that's not curable. Isn't it? Apostasy. And we can have lots of discussions about apostasy. But how about the one who says, I will heal their apostasy? God who does what we might think is impossible. I mean, healing sort of indicates getting rid of all the signs of the apostasy, doesn't it? All the defects and all the things that people could have listed about the failures of these Israelites, all the wrong they have done. God says, I'll heal them so that nobody will ever see them again. It would be very sad if somebody else brought the map and said, you used to be like this. After the heavenly doctor has been at work, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. The word freely there means he's going to show his love. Display it. Not merely speak about it. But give evidence of it. They're not, as it were, going to be put on some kind of middle position where God will keep an eye on them for a while. I will love them openly. You know, when someone says I will love them freely, it all depends on their competence, doesn't it? How good are they at showing their love? Well, how good is God at showing his love? When he says he will love them freely, that's a really amazing statement. 
He's no longer angry with them. Doesn't want to chastise them anymore. They've come to repentance. He doesn't say to them, now you've had a very good lesson. Don't do it again. Instead, he tells them what he will do. And uses all these illustrations to, to, to just make it sort of real in the lives of his listeners. He promises them refreshment and rapid recovery. And that happens, or that is described, when he says he's like the Jew to Israel. Now we can all picture the Jew. The Jew is very refreshing. Comes down on a dry land where the sun has been shining in all its strength all day. And sometimes the Jew there can, in Israel can almost look like a heavy rain. And the refreshment that comes there is copious. But also the Jew is silent. Who has ever heard the Jew coming down? Who has ever rushed to their window because they heard the Jew hitting the ground? God just does it. No trumpets being blown. Here it comes, the Jew, onto these people who a short time before their repentance had been raising their fists against him. Apparently in Israel, because the Jew was so copious, lilies appeared overnight. We might find that hard to believe. I did when I read it in one commentary, so just read another one. They all say the same thing. Overnight, these lilies just appear because the Jew is so, there's such an amount of it. Rapid recovery. How long does it take a backslider after he or she has repented to recover? What's the test period, the length of time? Well, God says, like the Jew, rapid. And why is it rapid? Because although on the outside they look like a lily, underneath they've got roots like the cedars. Isn't that extraordinary? Imagine this kind of um, plant, whatever you want to call it, Above the ground is like a lily. Below the ground it's got roots like the cedars. 
Where did these roots come from? Who was the one that uh, gave to these penitent people such strong roots? God. And because the roots are strong, they'll stand if they've repented. That's what God is saying to them. You know, it is possible, I suppose, in a certain sense to imitate the speedy lily's recovery. But you can't imitate the strong roots if they're not there. Because if they are there, the person's recovered. And and also, God, in addition to pointing out that they'll have refreshment and rapid recovery and strong roots, he says they'll have the blessing of constancy because he likens them to the olive. His beauty shall be like the olive. What's the beauty of the olive? Well, the olive is an evergreen tree. These people, before they repented, were the opposite of an olive. But having repented, God says, I will make them like an olive, and they will be Beautiful. And in addition to having this beauty like the olive tree, this penitent, repentant individual or group, they're going to have a fragrant aroma. Their fragrance is so strong. Lebanon was noted for the aroma of its trees and flowers. And God says to thee about these penitent people that the outcome of repentance is a sweet smell. Restoration. It's a divine activity. And therefore you would expect it to be divine. To give all the signs and evidences of God at work. Not in a second-rate way. But in his usual way. And having done, given them all that, what will they do? Well, it tells us in verse 7 what they'll do. They'll enjoy the company of God. They shall return and shall dwell beneath my shadow. I mean, that's the real proof of repentance, isn't it? 
It's not that I have a one-off encounter with God, as it were, and tick a box, but my whole spiritual activity has changed, and I delight in the presence of God. And I find, after we have repented, we will find that the God who was angry with us previously now is our shade. Amazing. I suppose it's worth asking ourselves at this moment, do we sense that? I'm not asking, do we know it should happen? I'm asking, is it happening? Are we aware at this moment that were under the shade of God. From the heat of the sun, from the cries of the opposition, from the noise of our own consciences, are we aware of the shade of God And this penitent person, according to verse 7, well, together they'll become a huge harvest. This is not Isaiah's hyperbole, oh, sorry, Hosea's hyperbole. This is God's promise. They shall flourish like the grain, they shall blossom like the vine. Indeed, their fame, which of course is another way of saying their witness, what people will notice about them and speak about, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. The best, the best wine. It's good to be a penitent person, isn't it? Good for lots of reasons. But this restoration is extraordinary. And then at verse 8, God, as it were, makes a plea. It's a bit like Paul saying to the Corinthians, we beseech you in Christ's stead. We beg you, how far down are we willing to go in order to encourage repentance? An even more intriguing question is, how far is God prepared to go to encourage repentance? He turns to Israel and says, Ephraim is another word for Israel, he says to them there in verse 8, what have I to do with idols? You can't, he's saying to them, you can't share me with your idols. He's saying to them, you can't add me to your list of idols. 
It's either me, says God, or them. You can't have both. And here's God saying to them, and he's not um, giving them a, a divine um, threat. He's appealing to them. Why do you want to take me down to the level of these idols? Do you not know who I am, says God? Tells them in verse 8. I am the one who answers your requests, your prayers, and looks after you. We can say the same about God, surely. He answers our prayers and looks after us. And then he says, I am like an evergreen cypress. Of course, a cypress is a very big tree. The people might be like evergreen olives, but God is an evergreen cypress, a God who changes not. And he says to them, from me comes your fruit. And fruit there, of course, just means all the things that he's promised earlier, but harvests and things like that. They can't get it from anywhere else. They don't get it certainly from the, they don't get it from the pagan people around them. But neither do they get it from themselves. It's from God alone. The only fountain. The only provider. The one who after he has given all the grace he has given today, and who can weigh that? All the grace he has given today still has the same amount of grace to give. Infinite. This is God's appeal. It's good to hear a God speaking with power. And who speaks like our God? And it's good to hear God speaking with wisdom. And who speaks as wisely as our God? But it's good to hear God speaking affectionately. And who loves like our God? And therefore we're told in verse 9... That if we're wise, we will think about these things. And we will see that repentance is the best policy. There's actually nothing like it. How many times can we repent? As often as we need to. And what does God do each time? He does each time what he does each time. 
He restores us. So it's good to repent. Shall we pray?